Welcome to Prescribed Listening from the University of Toledo Medical Center. On this podcast, we interview experts to get the answers you need and can trust. I'm your host, Chrissy Bilo. This is part two of our discussion with psychiatrist Dr. Victoria Kelly, all about women's mental health. During part one, we talked about the weight women carry with stress, the expectations society puts on them, and the growing number of women with ADHD, among other things. This week, we continue our conversation getting into the mental health struggles of motherhood. Let's ask our expert. For many women, the first year of motherhood is dark and complex. I'd like to talk about postpartum depression. Yeah. Postpartum depression cases have also been up, shocking everything's up. Um, mm-hmm. What have we been seeing here locally and at UTMC lately? We have been seeing quite a lot of crises and stressors, for sure. And I think with the the pandemic, it has, again, accentuated everything of um, that women and and mothers have had to go through and and bear the brunt of. Specific to postpartum depression, we've definitely been seeing higher rates of it. And I think the biggest things that you can really do, number one, is to recognize it. Um, And I think we probably have more than you know, we get treatment for um, because there's a lot of stigma attached to that. So a lot of times what it'll present with is they not feeling connected with their child. You know, Brooke Shields wrote a fantastic memoir, um, Down Came the Rain is the name of it, of her struggles with postpartum depression. And I think that's probably one of the most common thing, a numbness, a disconnect that, oh my God, like society says I should be jumping for joy and like, you know, pinching these little cheeks and snuggles and all this, and all I want to do is nothing. Like, I'm empty. So, you know, that's not typically what people think of when they think of depression. They think, you know, boo-hoo, sad, crying, that kind of stuff. So number one is recognizing it, and then number two is getting that intervention as quick as possible. I mean, there's so many things that go into it. You know, sleep deprivation, hormonal changes, those are a huge factor. And especially, um, also if you're like breastfeeding and stuff, that also still impacts your hormones. And if your menstrual cycles have recalibrated, and let alone the psychological transformation that women have to go through with the stages of um, pregnancy and then becoming a mom, and like literally every aspect of your life changes. Interestingly too, after you have a baby, your brain changes. And they've demonstrated neuronal changes in a mom's brain for up to two years. Uh, because essentially it's kind of rewiring to be able to be a good mom for your baby. Well, at the same time thinking, I'm not a good mom. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. See, evolutionary, that's good, because it'll keep making you do better so that, you you know, but we don't live in those times anymore. So it's like, thanks, brain. Could you just stop it? (laughs) That would be good. But mommy guilt, um, another way to look at it is parental burnout. And it stems from love, but, you know, you get this inferiority, guilt, perfectionism, and no matter what, it's like a damned if you do, damned if you don't. Um, And you're going to have these mommy guilty thoughts anyway, and whether it's about something you're doing, like going to work, eating junk food, or just whatever, or or things you're not doing. So let's say you're not breastfeeding or or not uh, taking that time for yourself. It's like there's, you're not going to win no matter what. So the biggest thing is, well, don't play that game then, right? Don't play that game. And... If you are triggered by social media, don't look at that. <laughs> it's as simple as that. But, I mean, there's so much data out there about, you know, Pinterest, or not, sorry, like Facebook is the most data because it's been around the longest about, 
You know, if you literally just open Facebook, there's data that show that your mood decreases, yes. <laughs> like just from that. So, you know, anything that contributes and feeds this beast, don't. You know, so social media is a lot of it. And kind of coming to terms with this myth of having it all. Having it all does not mean doing it all. And society wants, you know, women who are strong and independent, but also perfect mothers and, you know, sex goddesses and all this stuff. It's like, yeah, it can only be one of those things at any one time. So, and there is no perfect mom. And, you know, 75 to 80% is good enough. A good enough mom is perfect. Yes, everybody, nobody is in the hospital tonight. Nobody was bleeding. Like, everybody's semi-okay. Yeah, so it's in a way, it's in a t- uh, seeking perfection. Yes. So you, your mom guilt is going to stop when you stop trying to be perfect. And you accept uh, and acknowledge that you're not perfect. So you got to be open and honest with yourself, which is really hard for a lot of people to be okay with being imperfect and decide, you know, obviously if you've actually done something really wrong, okay, well that needs addressed, but that's not what we're talking about, right? And then fill your own cup. You know, that's an analogy that a lot of kids use at school. Uh, You know, are you a cup filler or, you know, whatever. So fill your own cup. Oh, you haven't? Dude, I hear so many things from my my kids from uh, elementary school and daycares and stuff, but like, they want to embody, you know, and start those habits, right, of, you know, you want to fill other people's cups, too. Do you, I mean, is it, instead of doing all the things, do you just want to take time to read? Or, hey, I just want to take some extra time to do my hair today and yeah. not have anyone else bother me. Yeah. Like, just, it can really be something very, very tiny. Simple. Yep. Avoid social media. Avoid comparisons. Because remember... Parenting is not a competitive sport. They don't have medals for in the Olympics for it. <laughs> so <laughs> you don't need to uh, compare yourself to others. Um, another thing that I uh, recommend to patients is not to use uh, the word should. I should be doing this. Ding, ding, ding. Really? Let's reframe this. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, avoid catastrophizing. You know, it's not going to last forever. Those early childhood years are really difficult because the children really do need a lot of guidance, a lot of, um, a, a lot, just of every part of us. And, you know, about 80% of new moms do have, like, baby blues, but that goes away pretty quickly within the first few weeks. And postpartum depression, though, that I mean, that is a true medical disorder. It could escalate to an emergency if a woman becomes so um, sick that they develop like psychotic symptoms or any, uh, sometimes you can even get like postpartum OCD in, in which you might have really scary, horrifying images of like doing stuff to your baby. Oh yeah, so if any kind of stuff, if there's a new baby around, I don't mess around. We need to get that treatment ASAP, whatever the symptoms that the mom is experiencing. So what do you do to get the diagnosis, the concrete answer of, yes, this, I have postpartum depression mm-hmm. versus something else going on? Yeah. So the OBGYN world has their own protocol. And so they'll screen at about six weeks postpartum. Um, you know, if so if anybody's had a child, you know, you, you get a call from the OB's office or from the hospital or somewhere, you know, just to check in and they'll do a rating scale over the phone with you about postpartum depression. Um, however, uh, if you look at the data about when postpartum depression happens, it's within the first four weeks. <laughs> so that timing is kind of not great. 
So the biggest thing really is, if you notice you're off, seek help immediately. Um, and have that, um, or if there's a partner or a family member, somebody that's supportive, um, you know, they can reach out to the doctor if needed. So my, my question is, um, how can you help someone you love who you see is struggling, who you think maybe, but you don't want to broach the topic to make matters t- a ton worse? How do you gently, successfully help them? Yeah. So one thing uh, for anybody, if you're trying to be supportive of anybody in mental health crisis, is ask, are you okay? Right? That's just opening sentence. And the next thing is listen. Listening cannot, I cannot stress the importance enough. Listening is huge. Um, you cannot fix it. You cannot medicate them. You cannot tell them what to do. You cannot fix it for them. You can listen. And again, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier, there's such a high level of loneliness um, in the modern American woman these days that just having that somebody that's willing to listen and hear you um, and accept you with all the warts and all, all the imperfections to be vulnerable, that is amazing. And that is the best thing, the first step that you can do. Um, Outside of that, if a mom, if you see someone struggling and they say they're okay, you give that opportunity to listen, but they don't take advantage of it, right? And then you can just offer what you can. So you say, I'm going to bring a meal over or, you know, I would like to do this or that, and, and be very concrete in terms of what you're offering. Yeah, don't say, what can I do? Exactly. I'm going to do that. Yep. So what I do is I work it on the flip side. If I'm working with um, women who have mommy guilt or, you know, um, difficulty accepting, accepting help from others, like, again, holidays that comes up too, and they're like so stressed from doing it all for the meals, well, let somebody else help. And, you know, like, well, does anybody offer you? Oh, yeah, they offer. Do you give them anything to do? Oh, no. Well, let's change that, right? And um, so again, kind of giving, receiving permission to receive and ask for help is uh, huge. And also sleep. That's another huge thing that for especially new, new parents. Uh, so offering any help with babysitting, um, even overnight, taking a, a shift of um, like overnight feedings or whatever. One of the biggest things for a brand new mom that you can do is help with sleep. Two nights without sleep, and your brain just starts to disconnect. So. Well, I mean, and even when the kids get older, I mean, the practices or the games go so late, or there's homework, and you're not going to go to sleep before your kid, and it's just like, well, we haven't eaten dinner yet, and it's, what, 9.30? I mean, so it's just, it's all a recipe for just, I, I can't do this. I'm a failure. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And, you know, again, we weren't really made to do this as humans, to function this way with this kind of schedule. So it's okay to take a pause and reevaluate and decide. You know, kids shouldn't be doing 10 million things every day anyway. There's actually some data that suggests that kids, you know, no more than like about two activities a week. And if you think about it, it's like, how is that even possible? How's my kid going to get to Harvard if they're only doing <laughs> one thing a week or, you know, something like that? So... It's our job to, you know, be supportive as best we can. The expectations, we just got to, like, crush them yes. and make them go away. Yes. So um, let's talk about kids and temper tantrums. Oh. For parents, how do you deal with your child's emotions without <laughs> losing your own mind? <laughs> or developing a drinking problem. Yes. yes. <laughs> They're probably why they, like, mo- what is it, the mommy wine time? Yeah, <laughs> like, like, yeah. <laughs> 
society has quite normalized that too. Yeah, yeah. But um, you know, I think the, with that, the first thing is, remember, kids are not adults. <laughs> and sometimes we forget that. Um, their brains are not little adult brains even, you know. So their brains are constantly, you know, in early um, childhood developing and going through different processes and different times. So like in adolescence, their brains are, you know, with the concept of pruning, their brains and neuronal tracts are growing. And so the brain is deciding what to prune and what to strengthen. So their brains are in constant flux and it's all impacted by the environment. So little, so child brains are not little adult brains. So coming from a perspective of empathy is was one. So often we think, oh, well, I don't throw a fit if my socks don't match. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe you do. Okay, no judgment. But I mean, most, most adults don't. So, you know, but that's not the kid. So, um, so number one is recognizing that it is the feeling that they are experiencing is completely normal. Number two, their reaction may seem excessive to an adult, but to a child, it may also be normal. Uh, and number three, depending on their age. So, you know, a two-year-old throwing a tantrum, uh, rolling on the floor screaming is normal. Um, you know, a seven-year-old doing it, probably not normal. And then also the gender differences that um, boys do tend to have a little bit later on the behavioral control. Um, so girls do tend to have a little, a little, you know, earlier. So again, a six-year-old boy and a six-year-old girl throwing a tantrum will look different. Why are kids so mean sometimes? <laughs> and how do you as a parent not take it personally besides thinking this has all happened because I'm a bad mom? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, if only I could uh, market that in a pill. Um, so most of kids, when, when they're saying things, there's not really a strong filter. And they don't understand, you know, certain things. You know, they've shown that, like, children learn better when they experience it. So you tell a kid, oh, it's cold outside, wear a coat. They'll be like, okay, mom, you know, whatever. And they don't believe it. And they go outside, it's cold. Oh, now they get a coat, now they believe it. But that's just how a child brain works, right? So kids, when they're feeling all sorts of ways and thinking all sorts of things, they don't have the ability to necessarily control it or understand it. The, the prefrontal cortex of our brain, the front part of our brains, is responsible for decision-making, executive functioning, um, you know, one plus two equals three, that the actions have consequences, all complicated moral behaviors. And guess what age that you still have an adolescent brain up until what age that that's not fully developed? Ooh. I I'm going into, like, possibly the mid-teens. Oh, later. 25, around what? age 20. Yeah, yes. So your child is still technically a child in their brain till about 25. <laughs> so they can, they can vote, they can join the military, they can buy guns, they can do all sorts and marry and do things. So. Yeah, but let's give them cell phones at like 10, right? Oh, sure. That makes sense. Sure, sure. No, but so to the point of the meanness, um, much of it is unintentional and and coming from a point of like empathy and understanding so your job as a parent number one is don't react so you know that's where a lot of the stuff with yelling at your kid it doesn't work um so don't react you as a parent need to set a good example if you can um 
to not lose your own crap and keep it together, redirect, reframe, because you are teaching them how to deal with um, all these prickly emotions. You are trying to teach them, trying to model, and also you want to be a safe space for your child so that when and if they ever truly need you, if they're truly struggling with something like suicidality, eating disorders, you know, sexual violence, whatever it is that they're going to go to you. So if you can keep yourself together and be a model of calm behaviors as when they're freaking out and having emotions, they're going to be more likely to come to you when it's really more uh, necessary. So, I mean, little kids can sure be bullies, but it's a, often very normal. Now, we're, we've talked a little bit about self, a lot about self-care right now and how, you know, you're so focused on your relationships with other people. You need to have a healthy relationship just with me, myself, and I right here. Yes. Me. And you say you do some of those things, but you come to the conclusion of, you know what, I need to talk to someone. What's the difference between a therapist and a psychiatrist? So when people need... Um, extra treatment for mental health conditions. There are all sorts of possible players for that um, for that team. So let me go through a few of them with you. So the biggest thing to understand is that with all these different types of degrees and professionals that people can get help from, like who's the right kind of person that you need help, um, if you need medications, if you need therapy, if you need different types of therapy, and that sort of thing. So a psychiatrist, most people probably don't know the difference between a psychiatrist and a psychologist, but a psychiatrist is a physician. So they're a medical doctor or a doctor of osteopathy, so an MD or a DO. They're a physician, meaning we did all of our pre-med, and then we did four years of medical school, and then Um, After finishing medical school, then that's when physicians choose their specialty. So you get, you know, pediatrics, internal medicine. Those are three-year residencies, but for psychiatry, it's a four-year residency. So we have had 12 years of training, essentially, by the time that we're done. And then some, there's other even add-on specialties, like child and adolescent psychiatry. So we have a biomedical background, and so we know about all of the ways and con- medical conditions that can contribute and be impacted, and the, also the medications, along with the four years of specialty training includes competencies for psych- various different types of psychotherapies and the practice in different settings. So we might have inpatient, outpatient, you know, nursing homes, hospital floors, emergency rooms, all sorts of places. And so that's different than a psychologist um, who is a PhD or a PsyD um, in clinical psychology. And so for them, that educational train is all, none of it is really biomedical. And it is all on the study of the, the mind and brain and behaviors. So it is vastly different. Um, so the therapy part, yes, but it, usually psychologists tend to do a very formalized therapy, like cognitive behavioral therapy. It's um, if you're following the therapy to fidelity. And then you get other types of therapists. You can get social work therapists. So if you ever see anybody with a LSW or a LISW, that's a type of therapist. Also a licensed marriage and family therapist, so uh, LMFT, and that means they have a master's degree, and that's a two-year degree. You can also have a licensed professional counselor, LPC or LPCC, and again, a master's degree. Um, so the next question that, that if I'm referring a patient for dedicated psychotherapy, they'll be like, which kind, you know, do I go to? And so 
If you have relatively straightforward needs, probably any of these backgrounds will be okay. If anything involving children or families, then you might want to go that way and that route. If someone needs um, dedicated cognitive behavioral therapy for certain conditions like OCD, bad anxiety disorders, things like that, then you might want to do a psychologist. And they can also do other um, things like uh, desensitization treatments and biofeedback. and then on the prescribing side of things, um, so none of the, those uh, types of professionals can prescribe. So on the prescribing side, you get a primary care physician. So very often they do prescribe mental health meds, uh, whether they're antidepressants, stimulants, anti-anxiety, sleeping meds, whatever. And they are trained to prescribe and deal with mental health conditions. So usually you don't get referred to a psychiatrist unless you've gone through maybe one or two options of treatments and not been you know, achieve the recovery that you want. Or perhaps you have bipolar disorder or a bunch of conditions, it's a little more complicated than the primary care would refer out. So often we see nurse practitioners and that is a type of advanced practice nurse. So you see APRN and then there's four different types of that and a nurse practitioner is one type. And then a third like clarification is psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner. So PMHNP. So let's add some more letters to the alphabet soup. So if you see a nurse practitioner and they, their field of specialty is mental health, you will see PMHNP or CNS, Certified Nurse Specialist. And they've gone through the advanced doctorate degree training, um, often based off of like uh, prevention and epidemiology and, and systems issues. Um, and they have specialty training in that. And sometimes we'll also see physician assistants um, in the mental health treatments. And so for physician assistants, those are approximately three years graduate program. And they're usually housed under colleges of medicine at different institutions versus nurse practitioners, which is housed under uh, colleges of nursing. So I don't know if you understood any of that, but... (laughs) Well, normally acronyms scare me anyways, but just listening to all of that and the breadth of people who can help you, it's not... Yes. You don't necessarily have to go to a psychiatrist. Oh, no. Mm -mm. No. Yeah. So a psychiatrist is probably, out of all of those, the one that can merge it all together the best. So we have the expertise on the medical side and on the psychotherapy side. Um, And again, kind of depending on what else is going on. Okay. Now, I'm going to end on two of the questions that we have asked every doctor on our podcast. And some of the answers are kind of fun, too. But, Dr. Kelly, you are a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. What is the most common question you get from patients, and what is your answer? The most common question I get from my patients <laughs> is probably something to the effect of, how can I be happy? What do you tell them? <laughs> Good luck. No. <laughs> Same. No. <laughs> you know, it is... I, I, I'm laughing, but, you know, the reality is that to some extent, society has said that happiness is the goal. But what the heck is that? What does that even mean, right? And so a part of understanding what the answer to that is, what is it for you? And a different, perhaps healthier way to look at happiness is peace or contentment and acceptance of where you're at and being okay with it. 
the literal side, I will pick apart, well, when was the last time you were happy? And what was different? What would you like to see changed? You know, because I have to be able to do that so I know what symptoms to target, either with medications or with uh, therapy techniques. But, um, you know, it's it, a lot of times people come to us in pain, emotional pain of some kind, and they just want it to go away. So, yeah, how can I be happy? And, you know, you got to be authentic to yourself. And in order to, to get what you want, you have to know who you are. And taking steps to become who you are can be uncomfortable for some of the people around you. It's super uncomfortable for most people, yes. Yeah. And get rid of those expectations. Like, that's the biggest thing for... Yeah, recalibrate. Yes. Mm -hmm. Let it go. Yeah. My residents make fun of me uh, because my resident doctors that I, I'm, I'm the program director, so I'm in charge of them. Um, every July when I get a new batch of interns, I make them do a SWOT analysis. Strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. And so it, I make them identify what are their strengths, weaknesses, and what are opportunities and threats. Because life is a marathon. And if you don't know who you are, what tools you have within yourself to use to get there, you're never gonna get there. And it's a marathon, we have to be able to survive. And there are certain things that we all do that will bring us down crashing and burning, like not sleeping well, <laughs> doom scrolling at night to avoid <laughs> chores, <laughs> uh, you know, whatever it might be. Um, but really, it's, it's about taking charge of your own uh, life, taking charge of your destiny and what you wanna do. And the reality is, you know, I, I'm also understanding that I'm coming from a perspective of privilege right and I am comfortable with my profession and I can spend the time to do this or that but the core principles can still be applied no matter what and I think the the mental health community as a whole has amazing resources that anybody can tap into you don't have insurance we still got you covered you can go to your local mental health board they will cover you. You know, you can get the services. You, you need addiction treatment? We got it. You know, we can hook you up. You don't have money for meds? We can help you. You need a support groups? You know, National Alliance on Mental Illness? They got you. You know, so help is out there. People just need to really be, um, take that first scary step to, to get it. If someone listening to this podcast wants to schedule an appointment with you guys, mm -hmm. um, how can they do that at your clinic? Yeah, so our number is, uh, for our outpatient clinic, is 419-383-5695, uh, uh, and they can schedule with uh, any of our therapists. We have several psychiatrists, and we have a wonderful resident clinic that I supervise, um, and then we have um, other great providers uh, there, too. So, Thank you, Dr. Kelly, for joining me today for this conversation about women's mental health. I I don't know. I don't know if it's just personally or just with all the talks I've had with a lot of my girlfriends. And it's just, I think your words will help a lot of people. So thank you. And that's all for this episode of Prescribed Listening. Tune in next time and subscribe for more on Apple Podcasts and Spotify.